0: I don't know if you notice this kind of stuff, but uh, I asked the folks here, the team, if we could do white lights on the stage today, <clears throat> and the reason is that, you know, we're in kind of a free, uh, free tradition church, Wood's Edge is, but if you have come from a more liturgical church or kind of high-form church, you may be accustomed to uh, like an altar with linens and the clergy wears vestments, robes, and sashes, <clears throat> and those churches tend to keep what's called the liturgical calendar. And basically throughout the course of the year, there are different seasons in the church year. And those would be marked by different colors up front. So the altar might have green one season, black on a particular holiday. And what we're in right now is called Easter Tide. So it's the 50 days between Easter Sunday and Pentecost. We're in the middle of that. And so I asked if we could do white, which is the, the color for Easter tide. And what I, I what I think is kind of cool about the liturgical calendar, what I appreciate about our more liturgical uh, friends in the Anglican and Methodist and Catholic Church, is that it, it serves as a visual reminder, kind of a visual cue of the rhythms of grace. And particularly it reminds us in Easter Tide that Easter is not just a commemoration of the historical resurrection of Jesus, though it is that, it's also an inauguration of a new reality for the people of God and a new redemptive reality for the world. And so that's the season we're in and uh, this morning our passage is going to be from Philippians 3. So if you would stand with me in reverence of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Philippians 3 starting at verse 7. Also just want to let you know this is going to be the best part of the sermon by far. It's going to be all downhill from here. So don't Don't just take this this reading as a formality. Really open your heart and receive this word from the Lord. Starting in verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. I love this passage and I love Easter tide, the season of Easter, because... I carry a deep sense of my own need for greater power in my life. Um, Just some real perspective into my own mind and heart. I often feel severely underachieving and underperforming and underrealized. I often feel that I'm not being the husband or the father or the friend that I should be. I carry with me unbroken, decades-long bad habits that I can't seem to get beyond I end many of my days feeling like my day has controlled me instead of the other way around. My life more often reflects the timidity of doubting Thomas than the temerity of the Apostle Paul. And so I have a constant sense of need for greater power in my life, and maybe I'm not alone. Henry David Thoreau said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, and so maybe that resonates with you a little bit. And even if it doesn't, even those of you who are rich and famous, titans of industry and power brokers and major corporations, the president of the HOA or the PTA, the genetically gifted who look like you belong in an apparel catalog, I want to bear some, there's a family in this section every time I see them I go, man, they look like they just walked out of a J Crew catalog. They're beautiful. <laughs> Even if that's you in your clearest moment, you sense probably your need for greater power because as as we live our life we're either weak and realize we're weak Or we're weak, but live under the illusion that we're strong, that we're in control. I read an article in the New York Times a couple years ago called Environmental Placebos. And it was talking about how people um, have the need to feel in control. And there are all kinds of things in our environment that give us a false sense of control. For instance, did you know that since about 1990, if you've been in an elevator with a door close button, that button does nothing. And so... Except that it gives you a sense of control when you push it thinking you're expediting your trip to the top and you're not. And there's there's all this kind of stuff in our world like that that calms us, makes us feel like we're in control and really we're not. In our clearest moments of self-awareness, we sense our lack of control, we sense our weakness and our need for greater power. I heard a talk the other day of a relatively famous Hollywood actor and he said this. He said, actors behind all the muscles and shining white teeth... And the low-cut dresses, it really is just masking a lot of very deep insecurity. And so though, though we smile in public and put on a happy face for the meet and greet at church, sometimes we're just a wreck inside. We're living long days of frustration. Maybe, maybe God feels distant to you, present enough to be believable, but just far enough to leave you wondering. Maybe your marriage is suffering. Your kids are struggling. Your job is stifling. Your parents are sick. You go to church seeking encouragement and a recharge, and you find out that it's a doggone guest speaker just not even preaching today. (laughs) You can't catch a break. There's always a small... When I come up, there's always a small number of people that leave out the back door, like, right as I'm coming up. I know know what's happening. We have some power on our own. In fact, neuroimaging, pictures of the brain show us that our brains have what's called plasticity our brains are able to change and throughout our life we can actually change the neural pathways in our mind to learn new things so you can by the power of habit learn to stop smoking and start exercising by your own power your brain is capable of that but you can't by an act of will or habit learn a distaste for sin or grow an affection for God you can, however, by sheer power of habit, train and rewire your brain to stop looking at sexual content in media. But you cannot, by those same means, train your heart to seek purity. That requires the power of God remaking us. So we don't really just need power. What we need is resurrection power. Resurrection power, that power directly from God that overcomes sin's effects in the world... And that could be anything from giving you hope in your heart to one day giving you a glorified resurrected body on the last day. The power of God overcoming sin's effects in the world. We're not just talking about the comfort of God or the presence of God, but the very power of God. We need that in our lives. So this morning, whether you're experiencing a measure of the power of the resurrection and you just want more, or whether you're new to church and you go, I don't even know what you're talking about. This is like a foreign language. What does this mean resurrection power whatever wherever you are the text we've read leaves us with a question that is how do we access and understand the power of the resurrection that Paul talks about here and our passage is going to show us a couple of things first we have to take inventory of our trash we've got to take inventory of our trash in verses five and six which precede what we just read the apostle Paul gives his resume And so he explains to us all the reasons that he is important and impressive in the world. And he references his education and his family pedigree, his accomplishments, his social status, his religious adherence, says here's my resume and all the things that make me impressive. And then in verse 7 he gives us a new kind of accounting. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith you may have heard the expression comparison is the thief of joy and social psychologists have actually Proven in experiments with both men and monkeys, actually, that we tend to assess our own uh, contentment and satisfaction in in comparison. And so if you take somebody and ask, are you content with your salary or wage? Often the answer is yes, until they find out that the person in the office next to them makes more than they do. All of a sudden, they're not happy anymore. And the same thing with monkeys. If a monkey's in a cage and given a dozen bananas, they're very content. Until they see that the monkey next to them got two dozen bananas, then all of a sudden, they're freaking out. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. But in reality, it's not comparison that steals joy. It's improper comparison. Because Paul is saying here that compared to the worth of knowing Christ... All things are rubbish. The Greek word he uses is skubala. It's it's borderline, a crass word that we wouldn't use in church. It means garbage, trash, rubbish, or refuse. It's not just of no value, it's of negative value. It's the kind of thing that when it's present, you want it taken away. And he's saying... He's willing to abandon everything that the world values, everything on his resume, and says, compared to the worth of knowing Christ, this is of negative value. I want this removed. I'm willing to lose all of this because in comparison to Christ, it's worth nothing. It's similar to the parable that Jesus tells of the man who finds a treasure in a field. And immediately he goes and sells all that he owns so he can use the money to buy the field and obtain the treasure. What Paul is saying here is that he has learned to value supremely what is supremely valuable. Instead of valuing supremely what is imminently corruptible, what is fleeting and rusting and comparatively worth nothing. It's not comparison that destroys joy. It's improper comparison. Here we see an apt godly comparison. Paul says, whatever prestige and position and power I had gained culturally from my family and my work and my education and my income. Now in comparison to knowing Christ, it's worth nothing, it's garbage. I was born in 1982, which means that I grew up watching the golden age of NBA basketball. Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. My first finals, I remember uh, watching the Lakers. And I started collecting basketball cards And I had heard stories from my dad's generation who collected baseball cards that, right, someone has a Babe Ruth rookie card and it's worth $10 million. And so I start collecting basketball cards and I'm meticulous, I get binders. And I categorize and organize my cards alphabetically for the random players. And then by team roster for the really good teams, by championship roster for those years when they win. And then I had my rookie cards and special edition cards separately encased. And I knew that one day down the road when I was really old, like 30, I'd be able to cash these in and I'd be set. So I keep these cards with me. I turn 30. I'm in law school. I'm only working during the summers at that point, so I'm trying to figure out cash flow during the year. I've got a wife and two kids. I say, okay, it's time. Let's go take a look. So I take in my collection to a memorabilia store near our house, and I put it on the counter, and I open it up, and I say, sir, I'd like for you to take a look at this and make me an offer. And he starts to thumb through and he says, oh, are all of these uh, 80s and early 90s NBA cards? And I say, yeah, yeah, they are. And (laughs) here's the championship rosters and you can see the alphabetical here. And then these are the special edition cards. And he looks at him and he says, well, to be honest with you, um, I have more of these than I know what to do with. You would have to pay me to take these from you. And so all of a sudden, my treasure, the thing that I had my identity in as a kid and that I had placed hope in to be able to feed my children, it was not just of no value, it was of negative value. I'd have had to give him cash to take them. Now before you judge my inability to value commodities and collectibles, which is true, did you know that in the United States every year, Americans spend 33 billion, with a B, 33 billion dollars on self-storage. I live in a space, but it's not big enough to hold all my stuff, so I'm gonna rent this space and put my extra stuff in there and it's gonna sit there probably for a few years until I decide what to do with it. At the same time, the UN estimated in 2008 that to feed the entire world, to make sure that children who are starving in sub-Saharan Africa and people who are malnourished in the Middle East, that everybody would be food secure for a mere $30 billion a year. We spend 10% more than that every year on self-storage in America. So maybe I'm not alone in not being able to have an accurate gauge on taking inventory of my trash. The question this text leaves us with, what are we willing to give up for the sake of gaining Christ, of knowing him? If you were offered a trade, all of your wealth and comfort and accomplishments for knowing Christ more deeply, for understanding the power of his resurrection more accurately, to walking in fellowship with him more earnestly, would you take that trade? And if you wouldn't, then it's probably because you've not yet, Take an inventory of your trash. You've not yet made the proper comparison. Not that these things that we have are objectively worthless in every sense. But when put in proper perspective, you can give them their proper value. So if we're going to experience and understand the power of the resurrection in our lives, first we have to take inventory of our trash. And then we're going to have to learn to trust in our treasure. To trust in our truer treasure. Look at verse 10. Paul continues, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've proclaimed faith in him, if you've been baptized into his people and you've given your life to following him, if you have any joy or peace or hope in your heart, if you have new affections and new appetites and abilities, recognize this morning that that is the power of God at work in you. Listen to Romans 15, 13. Paul prays, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If you abound in hope, if you have a measure of hope in Christ, that is the power of God at work in you. And I just don't want us to miss that this morning. I want us to see it and savor it and celebrate it. It is subtle, it is incremental, and it's the power of God at work in us, 100%. But what about that power that goes beyond this kind of ordinary mean of grace? Um, Recall last summer, we talked about the Holy Spirit, and we said the Holy Spirit is called the comforter in the Bible, and one of the most prolific ministries of the Holy Spirit is comforting. But those who are extremely comfortable in the world have a low capacity to be comforted. Conversely, those who are very uncomfortable in the world have a high capacity to experience the comforting ministry of the Spirit. And in the same way, those of us who live in a constant sense of our own power, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, we have a low capacity to experience the power of God at work in our life. Those, on the other hand, who live in weakness with a constant recognition of their lack of self-sufficiency of their need have a high capacity to experience the power of God at work. Uh, Our middle son, Jackson, when he was little, he got sick. And it was one of those deals where we had been up for like 24 hours. We couldn't sleep. He was up all night. We're sleep deprived. We have to take him in to the doctor. And or I think it was the hospital, actually. And and while we're there, I'm texting my family a quick update. And I said, hey, just so you know... Um, they've had to put him on a nebulizer, or they've had to use a nebulizer um, on him. And, you know, I'm, I'm bleary-eyed, right? I'm, I'm not in the right state of mind because I've not been sleeping. But all of a sudden, I start getting these text messages back from family saying, oh, my God, that's horrible. We're so sorry. We're praying for you. We love you. And I, and I get a couple of these, and I show my wife my phone. Doesn't this seem like in a, kind of an overreaction? I don't know if you know what a nebulizer is. This is a picture of a nebulizer. It's just a vaporizing machine that puts medicine into your lungs. You can use it at home, as you can see right on the couch. And so as I'm looking through these panicked messages from my family, I realize, oh, in my sleep-deprived state, I've actually, I've chosen the wrong word here. I didn't say nebulizer as I intended. I said defibrillator. (laughs) Defibrillator are the paddles that the doctor uses when your heart is stopped (laughs) and you need it to... To get jumped, and so all of a sudden I understood the the basis of my family's concern. If you look at these two pictures, who do you think has the greater capacity to experience the power of medicine? The, the guy on his couch with a nebulizer, a relatively banal treatment, or the guy on the table who has paddles coming out his chest? When we are in a state of weakness. Lacking self-sufficiency, we have an immense capacity to experience the power of God, the power of the resurrection. And I think this is why we see sensational manifestations of God's power so often in the developing world, the southern hemisphere. Countries where they don't have the, the affluence that we do and the, the illusion of power that we do. And that's why we see in those places so many stories of physics-defying interventions of God in the world. People being healed and miracles happening. And we see it less here. Why? I think in part because we just don't put ourselves in a position of having capacity to experience power. So if this is what the text is teaching. That to understand and experience the power of the resurrection. We have to take inventory of our trash. We have to learn to trust in our treasure. What's the the application for us here? What do we do with this text? Well, a first point of application is going to be somewhat redundant. Stop looking at your trash as treasure. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says in The Crucified Life. He says, those who seek the deeper Christian life and those who want the riches that are in Christ Jesus the Lord seek no place, no wealth, no things, only Christ. 1 John says it this way, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't love the things in the world. Love the maker of the world. And so as a point of application this morning, for many of us, maybe most of us, would be to repent of our pursuit of the American dream over and against the kingdom of God. If, if your value has been placed, if your identity has been placed in your accolades and accumulation, if that's your resume, if that's what gives you a sense of being okay, if that's what you've oriented your life towards achieving... That means you've been pursuing the American dream over and against the kingdom of God. We have to be honest with ourselves about that. Don't let culture tell us that our accumulation and accomplishment is the measure of our wellness and success. Paul says, I used to see it that way. My accumulation and my accomplishment gave me a sense of well-being, but now in comparison to knowing Christ, I see that this is garbage. And we have to trust in our treasure. Look at what Paul says does in this passage the way he reevaluates success the way he redefines his aspirations he says I used I used to care about my resume all this stuff seemed like what was important and now in comparison it's not and now here's what I care about and he lists them I want to know Christ I want to gain Christ I want to be found in Christ I want to have righteousness owing to faith in Christ I want to suffer with Christ and I want to be raised with Christ these are godly aspirations. This is what it looks like in the kingdom of God to have success and well-being. These are the things that we should be running after. Don't try to shun suffering or dodge discomfort. There's a missionary who's lived all over the world. He's, he's seen immense suffering in every corner of the globe. And importantly, he's done a huge survey interviewing Christians in hundreds and hundreds of Christians in persecuted countries. So... Uh, Russia before the fall of the wall, uh, China, Middle East, Southeast Asia, and here's what he writes in his book, The Insanity of God, about this. He says, before we can grasp the full meaning of the resurrection, we first have to witness or experience the crucifixion. If we spend our lives so afraid of suffering, so averse to sacrifice, that we avoid even the risk of persecution or crucifixion, we might never discover the true wonder, joy, and power of a resurrection faith. Ironically, avoiding suffering could be the very thing that prevents us from partnering deeply with the risen Jesus. Most of us in the U.S. are so conditioned to seek pleasure and avoid pain that it blinds us to Christ's call to bear our cross, to suffer with him, to co-suffer with the poor, to lay down our very lives for the sake of Christ. And even if we do all in our power to avoid suffering, even if we, do, even if we give our entire lives to trying to insulate ourselves from pain and achieve maximum comfort, we will not escape suffering. Suffering misses no man, without exception. Doesn't matter what you have in this world or how well put together you think you are. And if you're in Christ, God says he will use it for your good. He will use it to make us look more like Jesus. He will use it to increase our affections for God, and to deepen our satisfaction in the true source of joy and contentment. There's a Catholic writer named Richard Rohr, and he says about suffering that suffering is the only thing strong enough to destabilize our ego. He says that we have to be led to the edge of our own resources so that we learn to call upon God. And without suffering, we just don't get there. So a question... Do you trust God's goodness in your life enough to embrace suffering as a means to knowing Christ more deeply and honoring God more fully? Do you trust God's goodness in your life enough to embrace, not just endure, but embrace suffering? Are you willing to make the trade that Paul has made? Have you done that math? If your days don't demonstrate the power of the resurrection, it might be because your weeks don't reflect the reality of the crucifixion. If your days don't demonstrate the power of the resurrection, it may be because your weeks don't reflect the reality of the crucifixion. The power of the resurrection comes after the experience of the crucifixion. If we orient our lives entirely towards our resumes and comfort and convenience, and all the things that America tells us are valuable, we're not going to experience the power of the resurrection like we could in our life. Second Corinthians 12, Paul prays, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of the resurrection is known most fully in weakness. In conclusion, God's power is something that we should long for. It's something we should ask for and posture ourselves to receive. But it may never come in this life in the way or with the demonstration that we desire. His power is something that we yield to. It's not something that we command. If you're suffering chronic illness and you're pleading with God for healing he may by his power heal you whether through miracle or medicine and he may not if you have a child who's living a profligate lifestyle far from the Lord and you're pleading with God to save that child he may by his power and sovereignty call your child in and he may not God is all powerful and it's a power that we yield to not a power that we command we don't we don't tell him what to do we plead with him to respond to us and he always responds in love and wisdom always even if it doesn't look like what we want it to we have to give up our illusion of power doesn't matter how impressive you are how many people look at your life and go man they have got it together that's, that's what I want to be like. doesn't matter. You are one lazy lane change away. You are one trip to the doctor's office away. You are one downturn in the oil price away from everything that makes you feel secure and stable being stripped away from you entirely. We have to give up the illusion of our power. But I want to make a confession to you too. I believe this is what the, te- the text teaches us. But... Even in those times in my life when I've made decisions to set aside comfort for obedience, even those times where I've chosen the path of weakness, I have not always experienced God's resulting power. Sometimes I've just experienced more weakness and pain. I think that the moments when we're experiencing crucifixion, it just feels like crucifixion. It doesn't feel like power I think when when Jesus was hanging on the cross and questioning God, Father, why have you forsaken me? I think it just felt excruciating like crucifixion does. I don't think it felt like power. But that's why the author to Hebrews in chapter 12 writes of Christ that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. When Jesus was marching to the cross, it was for the joy set before him that he was able to endure it. When he was calling out excruciatingly to his father, it was the joy set before him that allowed him to endure. Didn't feel like power in the moment, but on the other side, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If we're in Christ today, we keep our eyes fixed on the joy before us. Today we endure the cross. Maybe we experience God's power while we're hanging there. Maybe we don't. But once that is over, we will invariably experience the power of the resurrection. We have to recognize that the power of God is ultimately demonstrated at death. We will receive, receive it in measure in life and we want it in increasing measure. But ultimately at death is where we see it most strongly. His power has been put on full display in the resurrection of Jesus. And it will be forever on display in the resurrection of his saints. Philippians three twenty through 21 shows us that at the day of resurrection we will be given glorified bodies like that of Jesus. One day you and I and everyone else with breath in their lungs will face death. And those that are aligned with Jesus, those who take refuge beneath his mercy, will experience the transcendently beautiful power of God for all eternity's days. Rather than death having the last word in our story, we will step on death's throat as we run into glory. That's the power of the resurrection. Throughout all of history... Death has screamed over all humanity, mine. And the power of the resurrection overcomes its volume with a simple whisper, no longer, no longer. So that Paul can pray, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the power of the resurrection. We will learn to take inventory of our trash, learn to trust in our treasure, yield ourselves to God's power, posture ourselves to receive God's power, pursue positions of weakness, lay our lives down for the sake of Christ in obedience to Christ. We will experience greater measure of his power in this life and ultimately we look unwaveringly toward the joy that lies before us on the day of resurrection. That's our hope. So let me pray for us. As we close, God, we are so grateful this morning that you operate always in love and always in wisdom. If we knew what you knew and had the power that you have, we would behave like you. But we are weak, we are finite, and we are not wise. And so God, this morning, we simply get on our knees before you, confess to you that we have, we have not seen clearly what is valuable in our life. And we have put... Far too much of our hope in our trash that is rusting and fleeting, and we have failed to ascertain the value that is in Christ and given ourselves fully to loving Him and worshiping Him and pursuing Him, finding our contentment in Him. So, Spirit, this morning we ask that you would, by your power, fill us, give us eyes to see, give us courage to live our lives in light of the beauty of Christ and the reality of the gospel. And always in light of the joy that is before us. Knowing that we who are in Christ no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to fear loss. Because Christ has defeated the grave. He's overcome death. That for all eternity, we who rest in his mercy will sing in joy. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has never placed their faith in Jesus who has never yielded themselves to the reality of God in the universe, a God who must punish sin and also loves us deeply, has offered us the opportunity to be reconciled to him through the death and resurrection of his son. God, would you move their heart this morning to simply yield to you, to turn their lives over to you, and to experience the joy that you provide. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.